0: Radio Land, Podcast Bill, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher, the Managing Editor of LARB. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And today we're going to listen to an interview with Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Janice is the editor of Women, Media, and Cultural Issues. Nice. Okay. So she covers... (laughs) Everything, essentially. Right. There you go. That's the hero. Okay. So it's Janice Rochelle Littlejohn speaking with the poet Douglas Kearney. Yes. um, And Douglas Kearney is, I believe, an LA poet. He's a local poet. And I've really been interested in Douglas Kearney's work for a really long time. And so I remember we got a galley of his latest book, which I think was called Buck Studies. Hmm. Which I believe is published by Fence, which is a great press. Yes. Okay, well, let's listen.
1: Hello, I'm Janice Rochelle Littlejohn, Senior Editor of Women, Culture, and Media for Los Angeles Review of Books.
2: And I'm Will Clark, and I'm an editor there, too.
1: Today, we have a conversation with Douglas Kearney. His third poetry collection, Patter from Red Hen Press, examines miscarriage, infertility, and parenthood, and was a finalist for the California Book Award in Poetry, his second, The Black Automaton, from Fence Books, was a national poetry series collection, Mess and Mess And, from Naomi Press, collects some of his writings on poetics and performativity. Fence Books published his collection current collection of poems, Buck Studies, last fall, and it recently won the CLMP Firecracker Award and the California Book Award Silver for Poetry. Born in Brooklyn, New York and raised in Altadena, California, Douglas lives with his family in Santa Clarita Valley. He teaches in the BFA in Critical Studies and the MFA in Creative Writing at Cal Arts where he received his MFA in writing. Douglas, welcome.
2: Thank you so much, Janice, and Will, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, Janice and I were talking earlier, and we both came to your work by actually hearing you perform it. Hmm. Um, So we were hoping you could start by reading us one of your poems. Sure. All
3: right, so this is the kind of title poem of a section of poems from Buck Studies, and that section is called The Black Woman's Tearmonger. Street cry of the black woman's Tearmonger." Bright cities and towns sun up and sundown, mongers of black women's tears at hollering, all the all the folk like shrikes a cluck. It's a lullaby. By the bottle, by the bucket, by the barrel, gotta go. By the sipper, by the river, come and get a lot of mo Aid. Take your many of US Americans who, for that way back body thirst, Guzzle black women's tears Ah, and smack wet lips Ah! in order to make an omelet. Are they to be gotten in cartons? Bobble black women's tears. Shell or yolk? Broke or loose? 11 o'clock stinger. TV to the live evening lead. Black woman clipped to a moan of Gone! led against blackness streets, her tears glint a plugged nickel jackpot. Stick and move. Some men, but tend to be men, mistake black women's tears for speed bags. In this world, where these chains stay on, we thus tend to be some men, fight for right to what's wrong. Street cry of the black woman's tearmonger. More in stock than that at Atlantic. Stock's on that at Atlantic. Keeping up appearances, big picture thinking. Pale and pale smog farts, old street sweepers rig grinding grimy curb bankments. City mended new pink and pink under scabs what were black women's tears. The carnivalesque. A young black woman bound ribbons to them as confused balloons gone down. Through the thin walls. Black neighbor woman. Her tears are clear feathers. Hand canaries crash. The glass that's her face. Divining. They hear a Sahara there of a black woman's laughter and scowling Top their dowsing rod. Street cry of the black woman's tearmonger. They come dear but go cheap. They run clear but flow deep. Their most desperate plan just might work. Act two in Big Summer Actioner. Hunting ingredients for last ditch cure. Brightening fallen officer. I know how to get the tears. The dogs. There's that black woman. Her tears dug themselves from her stung ducts, spilled to the road, tails affixed, pulled her by the eyes all over town, a pair of mastiffs among us sheer clutchers who'll ask if she'd wish to be freed, what new beast she'd shed. Shuck. So nacreous, the tears. Maybe that black woman's sternum's an oysters umbo. Neoliberalism. A bootstrapping black woman would macerate hers in vinegar. Lambskin pliabilities that right swipe for now's consumer likes. Street cry of the black woman's tear monk Plenty by the kettle,
1: plenty by the pail. I need you to come home and read when I'm reading. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, it's funny when I first heard you read years ago when Fearsome came out Mm -hmm. and I bought the book, I always kept feeling like I needed to have you in my head somewhere reading because it did so much for my understanding of the poem and my edification of the poem. But if we don't have Douglas Kearney in the room with us, how do you make the connection between how you read a poem and how others read your work?
3: That's, I mean, like, that's the question that kind of haunts me a lot of the time, right? Because sometimes I describe it like this. The, The poet side of me is like, oh, you know, I've made all these decisions about language or, you know, references to approaches to speech, like, the commercial or the salesperson or the, you know, the, the newscaster. And in my head, those forms, like those, those arenas of speech sort of come with approaches. They come with tones. Like if, if I were just to sort of go, and now da-ba-da, you'd know that, oh, that's a newscaster, right. you know, or if I say, now, Saturday, 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 you'd know <laughs> that it's like a monster truck rally. Right. Now, if I write Saturday, <laughs> Saturday, Saturday, in my head, I'm like, Clearly, somebody will see Saturday, 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 and then some other content, and they'll hear that. that. Now, that's what I think, right? That's what I think. And that's what oftentimes dictates it for me that I feel like I'm using forms that are extraordinarily familiar, I, I think, to most, you know, U.S. sort of listeners, but they might not, th- or readers, but they might not expect to encounter them in a book of poems, particularly if, if the poem isn't called like Truck Stop truck, truck right. shows with my with my father, mm-hmm. or, you know, or whatever. So in interesting ways, the Black Automaton, the poems in the Black Automaton were in some ways the writer part of me getting back at the performer part. The performer part, you know, of course, looks at that situation and goes like, awesome, I, I'm still needed. They need me there. They're going to want to come see me read it. You know, like I'm going to get to do this thing. <laughs> and so the writer part of me was sort of like, let me make some poems that you cannot perform accurately, Mm. right? Which is to say, if I have overlapping text, like in a poem like uh, Flood Song 1, right, Canal Rats uh, Chanty in Black Automaton, it's literally impossible for me to perform that poem without either audio or somebody else on stage with Mm. me. Suddenly it transforms. Like if I use a recording, right, how does the listener sort of create a hierarchy between what's being performed live versus what was pre-recorded. And that, I think, is a consideration that doesn't necessarily enter your mind when you're reading it on the page. And so the writerly argument for me, which is at some level a visual argument, right, is that you as readers can actually do this poem better. You can Mm -hmm. handle simultaneity more effectively than a voice can. And you can move through the poem in a way that I'm stuck fixed making one choice today if you saw this reading. Mm. Whereas you, with the book in your hand, can go, oh, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go back. And that really sort of dictated a lot of how um, I worked with those poems in the Black Automaton to the point that, and I've said this in other places, but to the point that I would hand out copies of poems or like the book and ask audience members to write a sequence of how they encountered what lines. So I never just got up and just read any of those poems. I was always saying like, oh, this is Will's reading <laughs> of The Black Automaton and the Despair of Existence number 2, right? And then I would read based upon that sequencing. Okay. So I'm trying to get to a place where the the sort of form of utterance, like if there is a reference that's happening, a kind of way of speaking has enough sort of grounding in the poem in this sort of familiar space. At the same time, I see that the poems that I'm writing, especially the ones that are using performative typography. And what's funny is the poem I just read is actually rather, like visually, it's fairly conventional. It doesn't, I'm not using any overlapping text or any canted text or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But as the pages become more and more dense with information and with text, those kinds of questions of performance and what's easier reading it or hearing it really come to the fore a lot. But even from a a space of content, I do acknowledge freely (laughs) that whereas a lot of writers privilege the visual Mm -hmm. um, in terms of even the images they choose, the way they're figuring through the world, I have found that I am much more interested oftentimes in the actual, uh, say, physicality of sound and of itself not to the point where I'm interested in just sound, right? But that I'm interested in the figures that come when you put their T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E next to T-H-E-I-R mm. um or T-H-E-R-E, right? I'm interested in what that does for a reader um, because at some level you're kind of acoustically, uh, sort of psychologically or cognitively dealing with that in your head even if you never read it aloud. Mm. And I also, you know, I just encourage people to read any poem aloud at least once. And that kind of gives them the opportunity. Like not my poem. I mean like any poem. (laughs) (laughs) Any poem that you read. One of your readings of of if you're going to give a poem three readings. If you're going to do it. Like one. I feel like one of those you got to give to reading it aloud. Because so much happens Mm. when you hear it. Even in a poem that does not seem overtly performative. And I want to emphasize overtly.
1: So I just need to use my own voice. Yeah, I'm like,
3: that's yours. I'm, it's like, it's. I, I want, I want people to do covers of the work. <laughs> like, ooh, I'm, okay. I want to hear. I'm, no, ooh, see, you're messing up. <laughs> you up. I'm like, I'm like, you read it. That's what I want to hear, guys. Gotcha. Because, because I think that that's actually really interesting, mm. and and I'm very excited about that. But yeah, so so that's so that is the a real question that that dogs me. Mm.
2: <laughs> I kind of want to ask maybe the other side of that question, which awesome. is if you if you guys who are listening haven't yet read some of uh, Doug's poems, one of the things he does is a lot of really visual, visual experimentation. Um, he sort of mentioned overlapping images, overlapping words. And one of the things that I found um, kind of interesting is the way that you use brackets mm-hmm. as a motif. So mm-hmm. what'll happen is you'll find like, parts of text actually bracketed off and separated or a bracket will lead to another kind of like explanation. And I was fascinated by, and especially hearing you talk about how you are not interested in linearity, how you work with those images or you work with that kind of like free-floating idea of a narrative of a poem Mm -hmm. at a textual level too. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know if, if that is not saying the same thing as what you're trying to do um, in terms of just sound or if it's the same thing. Um, but just how do you come about that? Because I, I really love the way you get at discrete ideas that don't happen in a linear way when you're working with those images on the page.
3: No, I mean, I think, I mean, that's a, a great observation. And, and, and about the brackets, in my head, the kind of grammar. That I'm using when I use a bracket. There's always this sort of tension between time, which I think of as the oral, oral experience of a, of, of a poem, is time based, um, and the visual, which is space, right? So you look at a poem and you're dealing with space. If you hear a poem, you're dealing with time. And so the brackets in my head oftentimes are there to suggest that whatever is inside the bracket is happening with a kind of simultaneity with the reference. So you almost think about like what's pointing to or what mm-hmm. it's being attached to. So you can almost think about it like if I say, if you were, if you were dealing with a footnote mm-hmm. and the gloss of the footnote happened simultaneously with the time of reading the line, right? No matter how long the footnote gloss was, like it's happening simultaneously in a way. And I'm really interested in how the reader has control of time. I was at um, a summer writing program earlier today and I was you know, talking to the students Students there and I was saying like, look, DVDs, digital TV, all of that stuff, it's just electronic version of what we've been doing with books for forever. <laughs> I can stop here, I can go back, I can skip ahead. Like All of that is just making television work like a book. And so for me, there's this kind of sense of like, if a 50 word footnote could somehow be condensed so that all the information were happening simultaneously mm. all the information of that 50 words were like happening like in an instant at the same time that you're in the flow of reading it that would be what that bracket is trying to do is trying to say all this is included in this tiny point and that's why i love the kind of that little that little point in the middle Mm -hmm. of the bracket. It's almost like taking all of this and creating this concentration at this one point. And so for me, that's like about like compressing a file, I guess you could say. (laughs) It's like compressing um, a file of content. And so in my imagination, that's usually what I'm thinking of when that happens. And so that to me puts, you know, like direct pressure on the question, uh, not only the question that you're asking, but the question you were asking earlier, Janice, which is, I can't do that, but you can basically synthesize that or simulate it mm-hmm. because once you've read the poem, you know, you're like, there's this information here, or there's this content here, there these sounds here, and they're happening at the same time as this word here. And we might not be able to actually read the entire page all at once at the level of I'm reading sentences, but the visual information of the page, we can see all at once to a certain extent. And that's really, you know, inspired by designers like Massin, Mm -hmm. who uh, did this really interesting, or Massin uh, did this really interesting uh, typographical treatment of Ionesco's The Bald Soprano, Mm -hmm. where you could tell what the dramatic action, what the dramaturgical action was Mm -hmm. without reading a line of it, because you could tell, oh, this is an argument, oh, this is a discussion, right? So what can we instantly see from the page? And my argument is always that even if you're not doing layers and, and things like that, A poem that's aligned to the left in basically regular stanzas, like say a a formally rigorous sonnet, like that shape on the page is communicating something to us that a poem with one long line in the middle is communicating very differently. The same basic shape of that poem, if you take line seven and make it twice the width of the other stanzas, suddenly that, that poem is telling you something different without even reading it yet. And the trick, I think, is the discipline is always to make that difference actually relevant, actually important, actually earned. Mm. And so I think that that becomes like a part of the question with the visual aspect of it. Does the poem need that as a part of its presentation, as a part of its, for lack of a better way of putting as a part of its argument
2: <laughs> uh, for being
3: a poem? Mm-hmm. Do I need to have the word boom really big in comic cutout letters thrown into the middle, exactly. Like, <laughs> as,
1: yeah. as I am holding as, up as, now.
3: <laughs> as you're holding up beat music, right? right? It's like, does it need it? And and then, and then, of course, you go to this great question, which I think, you know, is one of the more fun questions. Like, what do we mean by a poem needing anything? Like, what mm. do we mean by that?
1: Like, mm. like,
3: like, whose permission are we asking for? And so I think that that and what traditions are we trying to, you know, sit most comfortably inside? So I, I, these questions are just like <laughs> they're great, but they're...
0: You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation.
1: This is Janice Littlejohn with Los Angeles Review of Books. We have Peter J. Harris in the house again, and he is going to tell us what book he'd like to recommend for us.
4: Ooh, The Healers. It's a book by the Ghanaian writer Aye, Aye Kwe Arma. A-Y-E-I-K-W-E-I-A-R-M-A-H. Okay. That's the book.
1: <laughs> and why is it on your must-read list or for recommendation? Mm. It's one of those
4: books that imprinted me in my youth, in my 20s. I had babies real early. I was really not as able, as a result, to be as active as the cultural workers as I wanted to be. And one day, I saw a magazine called First World many years ago, and there was an excerpt of the healers in it. And it's, it's a conversation between the healer and this young boy who's the protagonist. And there's this magnificent just discussion about inspiration versus manipulation. Oh, my gosh. I get a chill thinking about it. And it just moved me so much. And I started looking for the book and I couldn't find it. And I got a chance to go to Ghana in 1979. I can't believe it. Wow. And it was in Ghana at the University of Legon where I found my copy of The Healers. I subsequently found more copies up in the bay at uh, Marcus Books many years later. but. Mm -hmm. I read that book in about five minutes it just possessed me and and it's really just it's a tremendous like who done it because somebody gets killed in the most awful way but meanwhile there's this wonderful really deep meditation about manhood in the case of the young man and masculinity against this backdrop of colonialism and its impact on you know on the bourgeoisie on the, on the leadership, you know, the 1% of the continent mm-hmm. and versus the people. Oh, man, it just moved me so, so terribly. And I haven't read it in a while, but it's, a, it's the book, I would say, for me, set me along with the, the music of Earth, Wind & Fire that set me into this kind of affirmative, life-affirming mold and, and has me trying to create beauty wherever I go. Do
1: you think that it inspired in any way the Black Man of Happiness or the Johnson Chronicle project? Mm -hmm.
4: It gave me some tools. So, in fact, in the Black Man of Happiness book, there's a, you know, one of the chapters is about, starts with, I'm a good man. Mm -hmm. And it segues through some stuff and it really says, let me let you hear this quote. And I quote extensively that passage in The Healers that I read all those years ago. And then I said, "Ah, I'm busted. I'm not really a, just a good dude. I'm am really a healer." Mm. And so, in that respect, I mean, I'm not trying to impose healing on you. Yeah. I just feel like that's part of what you know flows through me at my best. And so, yeah, I think that what the healers, as a book, did for me was one broaden my palate for reading continental African literature of the '70s and '80s, in particular. But also, it did give me some tools through which to think about what does it mean to be uh, happy? What does it mean to be alive? And, you know, what does it mean to be an urban African-American male? As And now, you know, when I hear the discussions, whether it's Black Lives Matter or any, you know, even Margaret Prescott, for example, these really smart people, there is a deep, deep conversation about the political nature, or maybe what people might call the political economy of blackness. But I think that it's important to at the same time get below sir I call it circuit breaking. How do we talk about black men in particular? That's truly one of my doorways right now to humanity. but how do we talk about the specific human being engaged in society on a day to day basis and on the sidewalks of our lives? How do we break through, any kind of conditionings. And I think vulnerability is certainly a key. I certainly learned that very early because I actually witnessed the birth of my child, my first child. I thought I was going to have to deliver him, in fact, because the, the midwife, who was also a doctor, got lost Coming to the crib, and you know, moms was in there like, "All right, bro, it's getting ready to happen," and I was like, "Oh, wait! All I had seen is like gun smoke episodes, <laughs> and I knew that some hot water was involved, but that and was a about a yeah, towel, right? That was about it." And she of course showed up, but I was there. You know, my first child was born in '77, mm-hmm. and it was just the most spirit opening experience I'd ever had. Mm-hmm. So, the healers as a book. Certainly the literature, the lyrics of the Earth, Wind and Fire songs, which I saw as poetry, which moved me as poetry. These things became really imprinted on me, a kind of a passionate, tender, powerful, masculine mission. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To be a grown up who had as much testosterone as I could manage. But it was also about some wholeness. You know, and of course I came of age when people like Lucille Clifton and Tony K. Bombar and other people were really, you know, June Jordan and others. Folks who I was like witnessing bring their work into the world. Mm-hmm. And that was part of of consciousness raising and, and growing into being a conscious man in those days. And so, yeah, you know, plus my mom had already taught me how to wash dishes and whatnot. So I was already doing <laughs> all that kind of stuff because she says, you wash dishes You know, you wash your clothes because that's what grown folks do. It don't matter whether you're male or female. Mm -hmm. You don't eat and not wash your dishes. That was ground zero for home training and for, as it turns out, political masculinity, progressive masculinity, you know, sort of radical masculinity. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, gave me the power to think about the chronicles in a new way, think about happiness in a new way, partner with my daughter in a new way, in the worst crisis of our lives.
1: Well, Peter, thank you so much for stopping by, and thanks for that recommendation.
4: Yeah, All right. yeah, Viva KPFK.
0: <laughs> You're listening to Larb Radio Hour, and now back to our interview with Douglas Kearney.
1: Well, speaking of, of traditions where you're sitting now um book studies came out uh last fall Mm -hmm. and prior to that in the same year someone took they tongues three operas also came out Mm -hmm. and so i was curious they both deal with race and black culture Mm -hmm. and an understanding or lack thereof Mm -hmm. and i was wondering was it intentional for you to try to put both of these books out at the same in the same year mm. the differences that they take in tone and in and, and presentation I was just wondering if you could talk about these two books that you had in 2016
3: Absolutely I did not know the book uh, Someone Took They Tongues was going to happen when I first started working on book studies Both Someone Took They Tongues and Mess and Messed were both basically written, or in the case of Someone Took Their Tongues, largely collected upon the invitation for opportunities to publish. So they were not kind of in my plan. I tend to be overdetermined <laughs> about certain <laughs> things and so overdetermined. And so um, I had this kind of arc of books. I knew uh, I had the roots of Buck Studies and the roots of Patter, mm. uh, my, my, my third book, kind of happening at some level simultaneously. When the publishing schedule for Red Hen, they took Patter, was ahead of the publishing schedule for Buck Studies. I began working more on uh, Patter, but then I got the opportunity to do a collection of my libretti. And the way that came about was, a uh, Subito um, Press out of uh, Boulder has a they do a, a you know a kind of an annual collecting of of submissions for work and published publications, and I was invited to submit something as a person who already had a few books out. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, I'm always complaining about how I spend a lot of time writing opera libretti, but there's not really a place for them as of yet. So I was like, oh, let me put them together into a manuscript and send them uh, to my dear friend Ruth Ellen Coker. Mm -hmm. I sent them to her and within 24 hours, I had emailed her back and was like, yeah, you know what? I don't know if that was a good idea. Partially because I was like, that wasn't a part of my plan. These are the books that are coming out. I know how to think through these books. That's what's going to happen. Um, and she did not reply to me over the entire weekend. Um, and, then the next, and then on Monday, she sent an email whose subject heading was, are you sure? Um, because she had already shown it to the publishers, um, uh, Noah Eli Gordon, and he was interested in publishing it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay. So that then had a kind of a timetable that I could work out sort of against in some ways what I was doing in patter, what I was, what was evolving through Buck Studies, and then with Mess and Mesa, which also came as an invitation from Noemi Press um, to write for their Infidel Poetics series. Suddenly, I was in this sort of place where I could begin to, to I guess, write more about how I think my work works or what I think my work is doing. At the same time that I'm writing that in such a way that pushes me to think through new ways of approaching the work and new ways of thinking about, for lack of a better way of putting it, this might sound, you know, pretentious, but like the poetic line. Like, because suddenly I was writing something that was at some level in my head essayistic, at some level in my head a way. I had a really great conversation with Tisa Bryant, a colleague of mine, brilliant writer, about the prose poem. And some of the pieces in Mess and Mess and I thought of it as sort of like attempts to write prose poetry, which was something that for years I've tried. to. How does prose, what does a prose poem do? at a line level. Mm-hmm. And so Someone Took their Tongues, the central piece in that is, is an opera called Ben Bannock that was written in a counterfeit language. And that's, I wrote that for my thesis, actually, at CalArts. So the most recent draft of it, the most recent version of it before I began working on it again for Someone Took their Tongues was at that time almost 10 years old. I had intentionally forgotten and not recorded how the, the rules of the counterfeit language, so that if I ever had to translate it from Ngumbo back into English, I would have to deal with it closer to the experience of somebody <laughs> like encountering this <laughs> language, like trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So that was both older than anything I was thinking about in Buck Studies, but at the same time, a direction that had made uh, so many any of the kinds of questions that i'm thinking about regarding syntax regarding my obsession with prepositions in my writing mm. like 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 where are things and 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 what do we call things when we're not calling them what they are so pronouns and prepositions are a major part of what i'm doing so it's been interesting to think about buck studies in relationship to someone took their tongues buck studies in some ways feels much Buck Studies is a funk record. Buck Studies is a funk record. The Black Automaton was a hip-hop album. Mm. Um, Patter is a soul album. Someone Took their Tongues. It's easy, and I've been kind of casually just easily saying, well, of course, it's an opera album, but maybe it's something different. I think that Binbanek in particular basically forced me to rethink language at a very granular level because suddenly to create the counterfeit language, I had to understand... Again, I'll talk about prepositions again briefly. Like, if I'm not just going to substitute another word for of, for example, I now have to think about of as composed from, but also hailing from in the culture that 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 created the language and gumbo. Are these two things seen as related, or would they have discrete terms? Mm-hmm. So when you get down to like the syntactic level of how we're using these terms and using these words and these parts of speech, and you begin to think, well, what can I substitute for it and what can a new language do with an article and a verb? Can it compress them? Does it require another part of speech to be an intermediary? That kind of thinking that went into uh, binbonic now, at the point of buck studies, is allowing me, I think, the most kind of freedom around syntax that I've ever tried to perform in writing in any work that I felt was was ready to be like published mm-hmm. and seen. So I do think that they're in a really interesting conversation. But it's been harder, honestly, and and it's been harder to talk about someone took their tongues because of their their relationship to opera. And so there's a kind of a thought of are these chamber operas? Like are they operas that are meant to be just read in your and, and heard in your head. Well, in the case of Suction, like that one was staged, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think Anne LeBaron's composition for it and the different performers who I've seen it, um, including uh, Sonu and Maria Kay, did brilliant work with them. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes really fascinating to just kind of think through how to talk about that book I will say that Ben Bonick, the uh, stage directions, which look sort of like comic book caption boxes, Mm -hmm. and in some ways, they gave me the opportunity to work with the kind of storytelling uh, methods that writers like Mike, writer artists like Mike Mignola, who does Hellboy, that I thought a lot about his approach to captions when I finally figured out how to do that. In early drafts of that, the stage directions were all poems as well. In this one, in my head, they are prose narrative lines. And so to be thinking through those kinds of, that kind of language that changed syntax, Mm -hmm. even in these straightforward English bits, was really quite freeing and harrowing in a way that I'm sure (laughs) that I I was not anticipating.
2: This is making me think a lot about mess and, mess and, in Mm -hmm. part because to me this seemed like one of the more self-referentially cerebral books Mm -hmm. where you're thinking, I mean, to me it seemed like a book of, your own poetic theory and you sort of stage it that way at the beginning when you say, what is the difference between poetry and rhetoric? we're like, okay, now we know what we're in for. Um, And afterwards, you say that a rhetorician grips, like, you have a metaphor of a snake, grips the snake securely, the scaly collar, ensuring the serpent doesn't bite. And then about poetry, you say, the poet, however, may find purchase further down the spine, leaving the viper free to writhe and to strike, which to me was really interesting about this book in particular because this one seems like the most direct um, in terms of laying out a way that you think. Mm-hmm. But um so I just wonder about that contrast between Messan Messen's real like self-auto theory and what you think what you think about the danger of poetry that separates that. Ah, oh because like I, I just read that about this the snake and I'm just like it, it seems clear like that you imagine that the poem can do something that is actually dangerous and um, maybe threatening or involved with the self that um, other kinds of writing can't. Mm. So I'm just mm. curious about that tension.
3: Well, the Infidel Poetics series, at the time that I was invited to write Messan Messan, they had published uh, Sarah Vap's End of the Sentimental Journey, which mm. is kind of an, a book-length poetry essay about difficulty where she's comparing the difficulty oftentimes associated with quote unquote experimental poetry with, um, sexual availability, Mm. availability of women. Mm. Right. So she was making this, this, this essay length, book length conceit around that argument. So when I saw that, I was like, Whoa, that's the kind of thing that that they're interested in with infidel poetics. Mm. So in many ways, infidel poetics, my my writing mess and mess and for that was in some ways designed to be very straightforward, at least in terms of articulating the theory, auto theory, my own poetics. But I was really interested in how one can write with the model of what I would what I've been calling the briar patch. Mm. Right. Which is to say you can look at a briar patch and you can say, oh, that is a briar patch. You know what it is. You can look <laughs> at it. But the moment you get in, the deeper you get into it, the more snarled you get into it, the more you get tangled. And yet, as the you know the folk tale tells us, some entities were born and raised in briar patches. And so what might seem like a a rhetorical tangle, or as I a way I articulate in other places, more noise than signal to one ear, or to one sense, might suddenly be very clear. And so I was really if I had to say what the kind of argument or the struggle that I was dealing with as I was writing that. And I mean, struggle, not like a struggle, but I mean, like, like just like what I was trying to figure out. (laughs) Be careful with our language here. (laughs) What I was trying to figure out was how much I could give without giving things all the way away. I mean, a figure who has been a kind of cautionary figure for me ever since I learned that people would be interested in hearing me talk about anything related to, you know, culture, has been the native guide in old adventure movies, like mm. jungle movies. There's always, like, this, this guy, usually a guy, but, you know, like, like, historically, like, you know, you might think of Pocahontas as, as a figure, who comes from a community that an outsider comes to, and that native guide helps the outsider learn the secrets of that community. And almost in every one of these films or the trope is that that native guide is at some level betraying the people and oftentimes suffers for it. Right. While the person they let in becomes the king, oftentimes the king of the jungle or, or defeats the temple or gets the treasure. Like, you know, like, like that happens in like adventure movies all the time. And sometimes I think about being a black academic as, as being the native guide. Mm-hmm. So like if I talk, about the code, right? In certain kinds of ways. When am I giving away the secret? And to what end? And so with Mess and Mess and, I was really aware of that. Like, okay, I'm going to talk about this stuff. But how am I going to do it in such a way that either if I'm giving away anything, I'm just like giving away the keys to my little room in this much larger complex? Or am I giving... Am I giving keys away to a room that, like, I don't use anymore? Like, yeah, yeah, this is what I did up until 2015. Now I'm doing other things, right? Like, so there's these questions, right? And I mean, a part of that is, in a very real way, I don't know when I'm going to, whether I'm done with what I talked about in mess and mess and, I could say to myself, oh, don't do these gestures anymore. Start fresh and do other things. But, you know, who knows if I'm just putting them in different clothing like I don't know but then of course neither do you <laughs> am I done did I give you counterfeit goods or am I still using the very goods that I've given you that I've told you are counterfeit <laughs> prior patch so that so that so that's kind of like where I sort of settled with this or sort of like how can I give myself a space to learn how to write about cultural criticism in a space where I feel like I'm at least containing the cost. Because I can't say that I represent a huge body of culture with any kind of totality. I could say that there's certainly cultural references that I make and that I'm working from. But I'm not breaking down somebody else's poetry when I wrote Mess and Mess End. Mm. I'm really talking about mine. And so I felt like I could at least contain... And I know this sounds ridiculous, probably to some listeners, but to some I imagine this sounds like exactly on time that if there was gonna be damage, that I would contain the damage mm-hmm. um in that way. But it was also just kind of fun to write. I mean, the terms for black studies section mm-hmm. was like echoing back to the first time I at my grandparents' house, I saw the devil's dictionary. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, and like I I I remembered looking at that, the spine of that book and be like, how can my grandparents have the devil's dictionary? (laughs) And one day finally looking at it and realizing, oh my, that's what this is. So that in some ways is one of the first books I remember sort of like nobody introducing me to. Mm -hmm. Having no like preamble to it, but just kind of like, I'm going to pick this up and reading it. Mm -hmm. And read it. Pick this up and reading it? Yeah, that's me working with syntax people. Mm -hmm. That wasn't a mistake. Mm -hmm. Um, Picking it up and and
1: reading. I was going to pick it up and read
3: it. And so, yeah, so there was... Fun to be had, for lack of a better way of putting it, and just signifying to be done, mm-hmm. which, you know, is just fun. And I mean, I'm certainly not inventing that, you know, so that's, yeah.
1: But, you know, it's it's interesting that you say that because I've often wondered, one, what inspires the work that you do and, and how you approach it? And what keeps it fun, as you say? Mm, oh, gosh. I mean...
2: I don't think you have enough fun with this person. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the, the back end of the question first. I mean, the question of whether it's still fun at some level is my way of detecting, that's my canary of detecting of whether I am doing what I feel like doing or whether I am maintaining a style that has become familiar and my biggest fear upon publishing Fearsome was that the next book I wrote would be exactly like Fearsome Mm. with just shifted poems. Like I, I was fully convinced that my personality, like so much of my background is quite literally in entertainment. And so my idea that they like this one and they like that one. So I just need to, Do another one like that. Like, I wanted to have a second manuscript done before Fearsome got published. Because then I could say, okay, well, I wrote these. And so those are going to come out after Fearsome, basically without knowing what was going to happen with Fearsome. And there's like one, like, yeah, I guess... Not quite chapbook, not quite full length. Maybe if I cheated and changed the formatting so it was like one stanza per page <laughs> you would a book or something like that. There's one manuscript that that's, that's that length. And then there's another one that's maybe a few pages longer than that, just tipping over into, you know, like a, a, a slim full length that exists. These two manuscripts exist that have been cannibalized only a little. Like I've really only taken two or maybe three poems from them collectively to publish elsewhere. But I don't think that's what freed me up for the Black Automaton. In fact, I had written a book called Drowning the Cities, and just to give you a full sense of the level of pretentiousness that 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 <laughs> was was, it was Drowning, and then if you looked at if you looked at the way it was going to be formatted, it was going to be Drowning on a line, right, and then mm-hmm. under it was going to be the cities. So it was going to be two sections of this mm-hmm. book: one called Drowning, and one called the Cities. <laughs> <laughs> And I remember writing these poems and finishing this book and feeling very proud of myself and that I hadn't repeated fearsome that I'd done something far more terrible. And (laughs) and I remember my wife, Nicole, like reading it and she goes, these are pretty wanky. (laughs) Really? Yeah. And so I left and took a long walk (laughs) and said, okay, that's fine. That's good. I cleared that out. Glad I didn't try to put that out there and then started writing the poems that became the Black Automaton. So what keeps it still fun, right, is when I feel like I create a space where my desire to have a particular kind of rigor, and that rigor doesn't always look like, you know, say, contemporary prosody as we tend to think about it, or even, you know, other older traditions in prosody. But when I can balance that rigor or that rigor becomes a way of delivering this other sort of play around the nature of signification. I mean, when I read when I read Harriet Mullen's work for the first time, like trimmings, sperm kit, I was like, oh, my God. She is like if she came to my to my house, we would all like shut up for a minute and listen to her talk. And then my dad would like start talking. And then my mother was and and we'd all just be (laughs) riffing. Right. Like, like that's how I imagined it. (laughs) But that signifying that rhetorical tradition, that rigorous space, which we see in kitchens, barbershops, hip hop music, you know, jazz language, you know, you know, beauty shops, the back row of a church, all Mm -hmm. that, like that tradition to me is one of the most demanding Rhetorical trajectory because it's not even just repartee. It's not just let's say clever things back to each other. It's like they have to be clever. They have to be musical. They have to be like topical. They have to speak to this larger sense of our kind of cultural trajectory, right? All of that has to happen when somebody walks in the room and says, "What's new?" Now you're like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> that I see your serve. That's a you're using a that you're using a defensive technique. Ah, you're gonna just kind of trick me into saying something like like that to me. Is fun, right? But when it begins to feel like a style, a particular kind of sentence, a a kind of way of approaching language, that's when it becomes less fun, because I begin to feel sort of like trapped in habit, as opposed to visiting a place I like to visit or going somewhere new, Mm -hmm. and so that becomes like a part of the question around. Fun, but also, around the question of like, well, what pushes me to write? I write in some ways because I, j- I love language. I really love language, and I don't just do audio because I love the way language looks. I love the way you read what I had written <laughs> it's like there's and I love to hear i like like there's a I have a friend who lives in Dallas, Joe Malazzo, and he does a poetry series called opP. And like they have people come in, and instead of reading your own work, they're like reading books written by other people. So it's other people's poetry. Mm. Yeah, (laughs) right. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Radio (laughs) Land. People's poetry. And 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 I love that as like an idea. Right. Like I mean, I and I know it's not a new idea. That's not the point. The point is that I love that this language can occupy different voices that, that, that people can hold it and they can, you know, work with it. And that if you've done your job as a writer, you're telling people about where you breathe or you're telling people about where you pause, you know, like, like that kind of thing. And if they're alert and they want to honor that, they're going to read it a certain way. And that's going to be a really interesting sort of thing. But what happens when people have a little slippage in there? So that's one thing. I love the language, but I also write to document what I think about something. And that documentation is more about, it's not about so that all of you can know what I have written and what my thoughts were. It's so that later on, when hopefully I grow, (laughs) right, I can look back to when I had different thoughts about something. I can look back and see preserved something that perhaps wasn't as developed or as robust as I would have liked. Hmm. Or in a moment when I am looking at somebody else and kind of going, oh, (laughs) I can actually look and be like, oh, remember that thing that you wrote, that you got published, that you, that everybody knows about, where you were saying something very similar, what are you going to do about that? (laughs) Like, what, like, like, what does that mean? How are you dealing with this person now? Mm. This person who you're sitting there, you know, you know, tisking, what does it mean to you to know that maybe you were thinking similar things at some point? And what did you have to do to stop that? And was it worth it? And what are you on about? Like, for me, writing is a way for me to practice being people and being the kind of person who I hope to be and knowing I'm not there yet and not being able to pretend that I'm there, that I, that I was there. Because for me, that's very freeing. As a person, I'm the type of person who has to, like, make sure when somebody says, have you read this, that, and the third? I have to, like, remind myself to say, if you didn't read it, say no. <laughs> Because otherwise, I'm just like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's been a long time. (laughs) I I can't really remember it all. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, I read that, right? Right. Because, you know, you don't, a lot of people feel an anxiety around being wrong about something or making a mistake. But, you know, there were times in my life where it was, it would freeze me. And that's not what being a person is. You're going to make some mistakes. But I do think it's important that I don't also turn around and act as though I never have made them. That I cop to them and that I don't dismiss what making a mistake can mean, not only for me in that moment of social interaction, but what it can mean for people I don't even see in that room. Because for many of us, a mistake we make has effects on lots of people. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, people have a lot more of impact than, say, you know, like than me or anybody else, but, but you know, I'm raising kids, I have students. So if I make a mistake in those spaces, that can multiply, so I need to understand how I can fail, and I need to document those failures and the successes. And so that's the other reason I write. And I think that I I don't think I'm I'm close enough to achieving what I imagine <laughs> is uh, where I'm supposed to be to to feel that that part will become satisfied. What might change is I might begin to realize that there are other actions I need to make. Mm-hmm to speed that along or to change the way I'm thinking about it. But, but that, those two things are what, or some of the reasons why I write.
1: Where you're supposed to be? Where I say
3: supposed to be, I would love to be able to say that that is an entirely internal standard that I have. But I couldn't, I couldn't honestly say that as a person who's aware that I'm a person living and walking among other people, that people's expectations they do mean something to me. I might not let them define me, but I'm aware that they're there. And even the act of saying, well, I'm not going to follow that expectation is a way of changing yourself based upon an expectation. So supposed to be, largely in my head, I think that what I'm supposed to be as a person is somebody who cares enough about what language as an act and as a way of making presence in the world and not just language published in books, but how you greet people, you know, how you, when you're introducing people or if you fail to introduce people, how you speak when you're angry, how you speak when you're happy, how you speak when you're distracted, how you speak when you're tired. Like all of these things are supposed to matter to me. Because I'm a poet. And so if that's true, then if I write about human cruelty using language of cruelty, if I don't change the way I am in the world as a result of whatever realization or whatever encounter I have with that poem, or whatever understanding I gain through that poem, And I think that understanding is different from an epiphany. I think it's just looking at what's there, not discovering a new thing. It's like, oh, this language does that. If I don't change, then what did I do it for? (laughs) I'm just a bastard slinging curse words at Mm. people if I don't change how I am in my life. And so for me, that's that's the supposed. (laughs) I don't know if there's a particular creed I do know that like to be as courageous when you're at a grocery store as you feel you can be when you're on a page and kind of like I'm gonna write this, right? Boom. Like that's I think that's a real thing. And so I would like, and that's why the first book was I called it Fear Some, and I sequenced it the way I sequenced it was basically like, I'm gonna tell you all these really kind of crappy things about me first. And if you make it past that first section, then I guess we're still talking and we're doing okay. But it was also so that I could be like, okay, I said that. Oh, they're still here? Okay. So I could talk about this other stuff, right? Without people feeling like I'm not willing to put whatever critical eye they they see me doing on myself. So I think that's what the supposed (laughs) to be is about.
2: This is bringing me back to a part that I really (laughs) liked about I'm just going to harp on mess and mess. I'm, I'm cool. With that. <laughs> harp away. As you, you say you have an obsession in my writing to scrutinize human cruelties so that I can learn to be less cruel, and that just really resonated with what you were saying. Mm-hmm. But it also prompted me to, kind of like my next question about that, which is that these, all of this writing is out in the world, and seems to me like its only objective can't be just about you. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. But that you have, like, you have something, and this goes kind of back to what you were saying earlier about not wanting your writing or your position as an academic to be one that's about decoding things for other people Mm -hmm. so that they have a proverbial access to a lived experience that's beyond them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, especially in the moment that we're in, this is all very importantly political stuff so i'm wondering what other effect you hope your writing will have no. beyond making you less cruel <laughs> i think it makes right. a reader less cruel too but i'm just kind of wondering what you how you think about that well i
3: hope that a person who comes to my work feels freed at some level to work toward being better to around other people. I th- and I think, and I don't think that's just my art. I mean, I think that one of the mm-hmm. things that art can do is sort of model. Like it, mm-hmm. like it creates like this sort of, like the X-Men's danger room. It creates like this sort of battle simulation for dealing with people who are not yourself. You can encounter them in these sort of spaces. If I foreground myself in that a part of it is I'm trying not to be presumptuous And to be like, you, reader, you are cruel. Read my work, you'll stop being that way, (laughs) right? I think that showing people different approaches to writing, different ways of seeing the world, different kinds of subjectivities, helps us understand more of the world around us. And that's, again, that's not unique to me. I think that that's something that poetry and art in general can do. And so I hope my work is participating in that. Mm. I hope my work is highlighting some of the violence inherent in language, in language, I shouldn't say inherent in language, inherent in particular applications of language, whether we're talking about certain laws, certain mottos, certain turns of phrase, because so much of our experience, when I say our experience, I am speaking primarily about, you know, U.S. American experience, Mm -hmm. is dictated by laws that are placed in language first and foremost, and then acted out or were acted out, then encoded by language, and now acted out again. So maybe the language isn't first and foremost at all. It probably it isn't first and foremost the mm-hmm. language, but how it's been encoded and told and, and, and passed down has oftentimes been through language that then is backed up by particular kinds of actions. So that alertness to language is something that's really important to me. The years when I was growing up and listening to like hip-hop music were the years of groups like Public Enemy and things like that, where I felt that a part of what, like the politics of what they were talking about were really only half, if, if, if that much of what my experience of it was. Not to belittle the politics, but more of it was like, how is Chuck D telling me to listen? How is he telling me to hear things? How is he telling me to understand language through his raps? Like, and so that's like key to me. So like if I create what I call a double jointed bit of syntax that looks like quote unquote broken English, I mean, I say it's not broken, it's double jointed. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what does this language allow me to hear better and perhaps tell, you know, other other readers and other listeners to hear when they're hearing somebody speak? One of the quotes I go back to all the time is Andre 3000's quote from the song Humble Mumble where he says, oh, hell no, nah. but yet it's that too. Like, what is happening in this moment of simultaneity? So I think that what I hope my poetry does is I hope it makes people alert to language, not just to decode laws, but, but that it makes people alert to the different kinds of pleasures they can have with language, what they can hear from what we might call the demotic, but a heightened demotic, right? We're not doing... Just how people talk, we're doing uh, heightened versions of that. What kind of different aesthetic experiences can they get from the world at large beyond my book if they are tuned or ear-stretched to the way a poem works in one of my books? So I'm trying to make available... New oh here's here's a term from my grad school uh, new textual <laughs> strategies for by which to engage the world because I do think that that once we begin to understand that there are many different lenses through which to view experience I think that we can think about that at the very localized level of myself this poem mm. but then we can begin to think well maybe it's not just this book maybe it's how I'm dealing with this person I'm seeing walking down the street or maybe it's how I'm dealing you know with this protest over here, maybe. So like, how can we see the world? And then, you know, to quote a friend of mine, Latasha Diggs, like, how can I also write some fly-ish? Like just some fly (laughs) stuff? I don't want to write something that's just cool. I want to write something that's cool to say that's cool to read aloud, that's cool to hear. And so, yeah. So I think that those are the things that I hope it does. And that if it's me, 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 if it sounds like me, 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 What I hope is that I'm saying that I don't want to just be, you know, the 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 president of my poetry. I want to be a client. Mm.
2: (laughs) Just to be sure, I was not saying this. No, no, I know, (laughs) I know, I know, I know. Um, That's just my anxiety. Yeah, I know, I I understand.
1: (laughs) Well, this has been a very cool conversation (laughs) with Douglas Kearney, and I want to thank you so much, Douglas, for talking with Will and myself.
3: Oh my gosh, thank you! It is such a pleasure to be here. It's such a great talk. Are we we sure we're done? I mean,
1: (laughs) no, we're gonna take this outside. (laughs) But we're done here for now. So I am Janice Littlejohn.
2: This is Will Clark.
1: And we've been talking to Douglas Kearney. Thank you so very much.
2: You.
0: You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production assistant from William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books.